1: Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where
2: PGA and LPGA players, legends, and top instructors share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, the PGA Tour Superstore, Taylor May Golf, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, Two Under, Ben Hogan Golf, Golf Pride, Srixon and their Z-Star Golf Balls, and the Sandiston Resort. Now here is your
1: host, Chris Mascaro.
3: Hey, good evening, folks, and thank you for joining me tonight here on Next on the i I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and what a great show we have in store for you tonight. I am going to be joined by Todd Beach, Senior VP of R&D for TaylorMade Golf, plus two of Golf Tips Magazine's top 25 instructors, John Hughes, and then our Resident Director of Instruction, Tom Patrick. Todd Beach and I, we're going to revisit the TaylorMade M5 and M6 drivers, which you hear me talk about every week here on the show. I'm going to remind you about them in just a minute as well. But I want to talk to Todd about, you you hear me say every single head is injected to the legal limit. I want to talk to Todd about what you might recall, you know, for folks that joined us earlier this year when I had David Ablees on the show, the face of those drivers are so hot. That they actually, you know, are over the legal limit when they come off the shelf. They have to go back in and inject the resin to actually pull those drivers and those, and those woods back inside the line, if you will. So many of our listeners talk about, hey, what are they injecting in there to get those heads to be so hot? It's actually the reverse of that. So I want to talk through that with Todd. Also want to talk to him about their iron sets, their new high-toe wedges. Oh, by the way, absolutely outstanding and the spider putter as well. Now, I have the first generation of spider putters, folks, and and it has made a world of difference in my putting. So we we know that they've done some updates to the spider putters this year, so we'll talk about those updates and if they've got anything planned for those as we get into 2020. So also, you know, we want to talk a little bit about emerging technology, some things we might learn about at the PGA Merchandise Show in late January. So a lot to get into with Todd. Really looking forward to having him with me. He'll join me in just a few minutes. Following him, John Hughes is going to be here. John is a, a well-decorated instructor down in the Orlando area. He's taught everyone from beginners up to tour players, which, when I read that, leads me to wonder, which one of those sets is more challenging? More challenging to get a, a new raw person that's a beginner, or more challenging to try to figure out how to help a tour player? We'll hear what John thinks about that. He also has a lot of great videos out there, folks, that, uh, that you'll find on his website, com, and on YouTube as well. So some we'll we'll talk about some teaching videos, some things about balance. Let's let's get some tips about our setup and our balance. Plus, he's got a drill where we drag an alignment stick through the hitting zone, drag it along the ground. Let's find out what that will do to help our swings get better. So excited to have John with me. Tonight's his first visit on the show. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. And then we're going to round out the show with our good friend Tom Patrick. You know TP. Tonight, he and I, we're going to talk putting. We're going to talk proper setup and ball position in our putt and stand. if we, you know, If we've got a certain kind of miss when we're missing, or if we're missing on the high side or the low side, is there a grip change that we should do to help correct that and, you know, to sink more putts? Also want to talk about golf ball fitting. I want to talk a little bit about that with Todd as well. But golf ball fitting, right? So many of us, right, where whatever is on sale, whatever we can find, golfballs.com, or whatever we might find, you know, on the golf course somewhere, right? We're picking those things up, putting them in our bags. But you know what? That's going to change distance. That's going to change feel around the green. So let's talk about that. when uh, We'll do that with TP. He'll join me a little bit later on in this hour. So there you have it, folks. More great stories and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Teen. As always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. You all know how much the Lawrence brothers, both Mitch and Matthew, mean to me and how great their golf shows are. So please make sure to tell all your friends and continue to support both of them. Mitch's show is called Talking Golf Getaways, and you can stream it online at golftripx.com. And that's a letter X. So golftripx.com. It's also available on audio and Player.fm. Mitch and his co-host Darren Bunch, they take you around the U S and Canada to some of the great places that you can go stay and play. And they also let you know about some of the hidden gem courses that you might not be aware of. So go online and check out their podcast on golftripx.com. And also check out Matthew's show. It's called Backspin Golf. He's on a hiatus right now, but his shows for this season are available as a podcast on wlxg.com, ESPN Radio up in Lexington, Kentucky. So if you miss any of his shows throughout the year, you can go online and catch up with them as a podcast. Again, the show is called Backspin Golf, and it's a fantastic listen. And folks, as you know, we're sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear from our good friend Steve Rondonero about what's going on up there. It's a Pete Dye masterpiece, the Pete Dye course at French Lake Resort. Pete says its location on one of the highest points in
1: Indiana makes it special.
4: The long views, you can see many 20, 30 miles from many of the fairways and many of the tees and greens. And, and you can see at 360
1: degree. Donald Ross's hill course put French Lick on the golf map more than 100 years ago. It's where Walter Hagen won the 1924 PGA Championship and the place where today's Symmetra Tour ladies battle each year. It's the ambiance around it makes the golf course. Combine our many resort amenities with legendary golf and you have a getaway like no other. French Lick Resort is the home of the Senior LPGA Championship, won in 2018 by World Golf Hall of Famer Laura Davies. Play the courses champions play. Plan your trip now, online at FrenchLick.com.
3: Yeah, folks, go online to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself what a beautiful resort and what great golf courses they've got up there and book your stay there as well. And oh, by the way, my friends, they've got a casino right there on the property as well. Fantastic place, FrenchLick.com. And, well, folks, you heard me talk about it a second ago, and you hear me say this every single week here on Next on the Tee, but TaylorMade Golf has done it again. The TaylorMade M5 and M6 drivers are a tremendous story. They both feature speed-injected twist face created through a revolutionary manufacturing process where every single head, folks, and, yes, indeed, every single head is injected and calibrated to the threshold of the legal limit. So, basically, every head is made to be tour spicy. Check them out online by going to TaylorMadeGolf.com. And please check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Apparel Company by going online to bobbyjones.com. They've got their new holiday collection out right now. Their new sweaters, vests, and outerwear are absolutely spectacular, folks. They are where luxury textures meet deep, rich colors, and they all come together with elegant ease. You're going to see Steve Tricker, Miguel Angel Jimenez, and Ernie Els wearing it out on the Champions Tour. Check it out for yourself online at bobbyjones.com and enter the coupon code T to save 20% at checkout. All right, now joining me here on the French Lick Resort guest line is TaylorMade Golf Senior VP of Research, Design, and Engineering, Todd Beach. Let me give you a little background on Todd. He earned his undergraduate degree in engineering at the University of California at San Diego and went on to earn his master's in applied engineering from there as well. Started out his career working for Sparta Inc., which makes products for the defense industry for the federal government. He joined TaylorMade back in April of 1995, and I'm very excited he is with me tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Todd, thanks for coming on the show.
4: Hey, Chris, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
3: So, Todd, I want to start out talking about how a guy with his master's in applied engineering who spent a dozen years working in the the defense industry, transitioning over and starts to help, you know, make great golf clubs over at TaylorMade. How'd you make that transition?
4: Yeah, well, I'm I'm a pretty blessed uh guy and an engineer to have had that opportunity. I've been at Tailor Made now almost 25 years here in April. But uh yeah, it's uh, it's funny back it just so happened I like you said I graduated from UC San Diego uh with my engineering degree and like a lot of engineers got a job in aerospace at the time with a local company and was cruising along my career, but I started to find out that, um, Carlsbad, which is just north of San Diego, uh, suburb, uh, is really the Silicon Valley of golf manufacturers. And some of my friends were getting jobs, uh, in the industry and I started paying attention and, uh, an opportunity came up and, I was able to uh, apply for a job at TaylorMade and I uh, was fortunate enough to, to get in here and uh, it's it's been quite a run since. It's it's been very challenging, very interesting and I, you know, learned a lot in, in the aerospace days that I was able to apply here because I was there for 11 years before getting to TaylorMade, but uh, um the golf industry and equipment industry is really as an engineer is one of the most challenging and exciting things to to get to work on, especially if you play golf yourself. So I've been very blessed that way.
3: And Todd, you know, I mean, in my mind, I'm conjuring up images, you know, the aerospace industry and, you know, aerodynamics and all of those sorts of things, you know, talk about how you're able to take those, you know, applied skills that you had there and that in in the previous role, and now bring that over to golf clubs and how those two have the synergies, because you know aerodynamics and swing speed and all of those sorts of things are, are things we talk about a lot and we see a lot on commercials. How does it actually apply
4: yeah it's it's interesting um uh, you know when I first uh took the job, I kind of thought, hey, this is gonna be easy i'm gonna get to we've got the kingdom driving range here, but we didn't have it at the time I started we, there was a driving range down the street, but I thought I'd be you know out there in the afternoons working on my game and uh dropping my handicap. And it turns out that, uh, they say actually, you know, one of the the problems with the golf industry is your handicap generally doesn't drop. If you're in the equipment industry, we're all working pretty hard. It's pretty competitive. And the technology really is, uh, pretty challenging for an engineer, but, uh, yeah, so I got in here and actually my background was more, I was working on missiles, um, kind of defense type contracts, a lot of advanced materials of composites and titaniums and aluminums uh, for that application, you know, and and very high, highly loaded. They had to be very rigid and stiff to be able to, you know, navigate in and hit their targets and all that stuff. So I was thinking, Hey, this is going to be easy to apply this stuff and how hard can golf be. Right. And uh, it so turns out that when you look at golf, um, you know, really it starts with, it's It's kind of uh, surprising and, and counterintuitive when you think about it. The ball is going from zero to, say, 180 miles per hour in the case of a tour player like a Dustin Johnson. He's probably pushing 190 sometimes. But it goes to zero to 180 in a half of a millisecond. That's point zero 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 five seconds. It's instantly up to speed. And the ball experiences um, 30,000 Gs of acceleration during that time. And the club is then decelerating by 10,000 Gs. And it's a pretty violent collision. So you basically are trying to make sense out of that, understand all the physics that are going into that. And then on top of that, you've got this product that's got to perform for the best athletes in the world that are highly particular, have hit hundreds of thousands of shots and know exactly how that club should look and feel, how the launch angle should come off the spin rate. Um, And then you're trying to maximize performance for these golfers. And then it's got to work for a wide range of golfers. As we all know, you know, the difference between a tour player and your average player is, is a big change, right? So we have to design for such a wide range of of skills. Um, and then you throw into that that it's a, you know, it's a high volume consumer product. We make, you know, seven or eight million of these clubs per year. Um, and nowadays, uh, back when TaylorMade started, it's actually our 40th anniversary. You know, we started in Chicago area um, and uh, where a lot of the golf industry was but now they 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 really tailor made invented the investment cast uh metal wood made out of a high strength steel and most of that technology was in Los Angeles for the aerospace industry so that's why they moved out here um but it's um you know now it's it's most of the uh of the golf industry is based on the west coast you still have ping that is in uh Phoenix Scottsdale area, and you have Wilson out in uh, um, Chicago still, but most of us are are out here. Um, So it's, uh, you know, the industry was here, um, and uh, ultimately uh, that that aerospace industry just couldn't keep up with the finishing demands that golf has. I mean, they basically said, uh, hey, we can, uh, you know, this is good enough for an airplane component. We're like, no, 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 this stuff's got to look like jewelry, you know. And so they eventually started throwing more labor at it. That kind of moved down to uh, uh, Tijuana, Mexico at one point. And then we kind of started using Japan and ultimately Taiwan. And now it's kind of all, all over the place in terms of having the, uh, you know, the resources to uh, to make the, this, this quantity of product. So we're trying to manage this global manufacturing process, design players at work, clubs that work for best players in the world. Um, and it's a it's a highly marketed product. Um, you know, we run TV commercials and magazine ads. Obviously, social media is playing a much bigger role. We have these types of uh, um, talk um, opportunities to to get the word out. So, compared to aerospace, I was kind of like, whoa, this is this is a lot. Because you know, aerospace, you you write a contract to the government. There's multiple bids. You get the contract. You work on it. And you're kind of focused on one thing at a time, and boy, with golf, there's a lot of physics, a lot of different things going on, and a lot of different products. So it it, it was it was kind of a wake up call getting over here um, back in '95, and uh, but it's been a fun ride ever since. And you know, my career through TaylorMade has kind of progressed uh, from being more limited, where I was started off working on, if you remember, the bubble shaft. Um, that right. was My first project. Um, which was a a pretty cool technology. It was a special uh manufacturing technology that was developed by our our at that time owner, which was uh, a French ski company called solomon um and they' had developed that ladder molding process for making hollow ski skis and uh Then I transitioned from that to uh Kind of applying my technology materials technology to our advanced technology group, where I was looking at new types of metals as well as composites, then I went on to uh, leading the metalwood r and d team for quite a few years until a few years ago I took over um, uh, leading the entire r and d department so now it's you know we got everything from metalwoods irons putters wedges. Uh, Balls, bags, gloves—you know—so it's it's a lot of different products to uh, you know to try to you know really make. We, our goal is to not just be what we were known as back when we started as a metalwood company, but to make the best products in, in every category. And I think we're we're really starting to to do that year after year as we as we kind of bring parity to all the product categories for Timberman.
3: So, Todd, there's there's a few things I want to expound on that uh, that you just mentioned. First of all, when you brought up the bubble shaft, my father's got a set of bubble shaft, uh, you know, metal woods to this day, I believe, in his garage. What happened to the bubble shaft?
4: Yeah, the bubble shaft was an interesting story. Like I said, it was a, a new technology. They actually, um, they were going to, uh, they were, the reason it bubbled out like that was, they, their idea was to call it the integral shaft and they were going to make a grip that had like a a plastic injection molded piece that would smoothly transition from the end of the grip, the bottom of the grip to the shaft so there would be no step down there. And then one day somebody showed somebody uh, a a club without that plastic piece and they're like, "Oh, that's kind of cool. It Looks like it goes down and then bubbles back up." And uh Taylor made it was It was back in, like, 93, 94, they were developing this, uh, and uh, it turns out that they had a prototype that um, was played by Jose Maria Olafabel at the Masters, and he won it playing that in 94. And all of a sudden, there was this buzz of, what's this secret shaft? Is there something special there? And so when I came on in 95, that's when we launched the – uh, burner bubble, um, which was really a, a collaboration of TaylorMade with Nissan Design, who was based in here in, in San Diego, that they kind of came up with this new color scheme and it was kind of this this brownish copper color which was you know non traditional at the time and and because of the buzz around the bubble shaft it really gained a lot of uh, momentum in the marketplace and really helped catapult Taylormade, you know, back um, onto a a really good trajectory, um, year after year. And next year after that, we came out with the Tide Bubble, um, which was really our first titanium driver. Um, and then ultimately came out with the Tide Bubble 2. Um, and we're kind of going down that path all the way to the 300 series that we came out with at the end of 99, which, uh, was kind of the first time we went away from that copper color. Um, and because we kind of gotten too far, I think they were starting to almost look orange at the time <laughs> we got, okay, we got to get back to just a serious club that, you know, you don't want to turn people off on the, based on the color of your club. And, and so we had the bubble in there, but then we were starting to look at, you know, what is really the performance difference in that bubble? And we, and we said, you know, we can really, with the modern chaff technology, we can match the weight, the stiffness, and the durability with more of a uh, conventionally shaped, shaft. And and we decided then after after that product line to start to, to go with more traditional. And since then, we've really been working with all the top shaft suppliers to to really identify which of their shafts, aftermarket shafts, work best with our products. And that's kind of been the trend ever since. Is, well, hey, let's let them do the work to really optimize and do the best shafts. And we'll test a range of those with whatever head we're doing and see what's working best and what's kind of hot on tour, what's hot in the marketplace, and really give the golfer as a stock product, you know, what is really a a custom shaft. And we have a number of, you know, no upcharge custom shafts as well that um, golfers can choose from if they do want to get custom fit.
3: Todd, you mentioned a moment ago, you know, things being counterintuitive and your M5 and M6 drivers are a fascinating story because the face is actually so hot when it's, when there's nothing in it, that it's illegal and you actually inject the resin into it to sort of bring it back into being legal, which is sort of counterintuitive, and I think what most people envision. When we see the injection, we think, well, they've injected something in it to make the face hot when, it, when the reverse is actually true. Talk about that process in the M5 and M6 drivers.
4: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Chris, because as an engineer, we would have rather had marketing tell that story but it's a, it takes a little bit longer to get it through, but that is the true story. And so when we say injected twist face, right, it does have those two tuning ports in the, in the face, which were a very challenging thing engineering wise to do, because they have to be perfectly flushed because obviously we, we don't want to have any impact to the ball flight. And also USGA has a rule on that, that they have to be perfectly flush. But what we, uh, What we did there is exactly what you said. And, you know, the way it's said is injected twist face, you'd almost think we're injecting flubber in there or something to give more speed, you know, to the face, but to juice it up. But actually what we're doing is traditionally the way faces are made is they're not exactly made the same every one because it has to be made with a high grade of titanium that is actually welded on um, to the, the rest of the, the titanium body, and then you have to grind off that weld bead, and then you have to polish it flush. And every time you do that, there's some variation in the thickness, which set, causes some variation in how speedy the face is. And in order to respect the USGA rule on, you know, traditionally golf companies have had to design so their average face speed is below the USJ limit because you don't want to have, if, it, if you kind of overpolished it a little bit, you don't want any of those to exceed the limit. And what we've traditionally done in the past is we would cherry pick those faster heads and just give those to the tour players, you know, that were up closer to that limit because, you know, we don't use very many of those. But for the average player, you can't afford to 100% cherry pick or you'd be throwing out all the ones that were a little bit slow. So in re- reality, whenever anybody would go in to buy a driver in the marketplace, they're, it's kind of like they're playing the lottery. You know, is, you're you're paying, you know, four hundred fifty, five hundred dollars. We're up to five fifty now. That's a lot of, a lot of dollars for a driver, and you know, you're essentially playing the lottery on uh, will you get a little bit slower in the middle or a little bit fast. And we said, you know, that's that's not really fair to the golfer. We'd like to be able to offer them what the tour players get. So we really thought, how do we do that? Can we just polish more carefully to get them all to the same level? But that just takes too much time and you can't guarantee you do that. So we kept thinking, kept thinking. We said, Well, wait a minute, we can actually make a non conforming driver. We we used to do that for Japan when there was no limit in Japan. We can make it durable and everything. So what if we actually make every driver non conforming? Um, and they'd still have that variability due to polishing, so there'd be a range of of speed. Some would be way faster, some would be just a little bit faster than the the legal limit. And then let's 100% test those with the with this uh, device that is has been designed by the USGA to test conformance. We'll 100% test them, and then we'll write a an algorithm that will determine how much of a resin to inject in each of those two ports to slow it down right below the legal limit so that every driver is just right below that legal limit. So that's kind of the story of what we did, but that takes too long to tell, you know, when you're running a 32nd TV commercial. So um, I'm glad I finally got a chance to tell it to your users, hopefully your listeners, hopefully that, uh, that makes sense. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit more easy to understand what we were injecting there.
3: And Todd, twist face technology is is an absolutely fantastic design. I'm curious: is is there more to do with the structure of the face that can get you know get us even greater accuracy? And and are there limitations for what you can do with the face of the club according to USGA rules?
4: Yeah, it was interesting. We were kind of worried that they uh, they might balk at the twist face idea, but basically all it is is every driver you know, has been designed um, all the way back over 100 years ago. They discovered putting bulge on a driver helps bring the ball back to the middle. Um, It was before that they would actually try to make concave faces. Intuitively, you'd think you'd want a radar shape, you know, to point to the middle, but because of this phenomenon called gear effect, you know, when you hit it on the toe with a driver, the head rotates. When you're looking top views, it would be rotating clockwise, but the ball puts it puts counterclockwise spin on the ball because they're acting like two, two gears that are locked together, essentially. That's what gear effect means. And so um, traditionally what golf companies have done is they use a robot to, to determine what the bulge radius needs to be to bring the ball back to, to the middle. And that's what we would always do. We'd, you know, design the mass properties, the size of the face, all those things, put it on the robot and start to change the bulge radius from, you know, say 10, 11, 12, 12 and a half, whatever it needs to be in order to bring that ball back to the middle when you um, square the face at impact and uh, hit it on the toe. Well, it turns out, um, you know, robots don't really play golf. Humans do. And it turns out when we started using these modern tools to actually measure where every ball goes with all of our player testing, and where the, they hit it on the face when it goes there, we started to discover that there's some trends. When golfers tend to hit it on the – they tend to go from high toe to low heel. That's just kind of where the misses are, um, through the center, obviously. And when they miss it high toe, what tends to happen, and most every golfer can relate to this, they can tend to hit – they overcook it. They A lot of times they'll hit the snap hook, which ends up going too far left, for a right hander and too low, right? And we're like, that's weird because we don't see that on the robot when we hit t- high toe with our old bulge and roll. So we started to say, well, what could we do um, to counteract this? And we said, well, what if we twisted the face in order on the high toe in order to be a little bit more open on the high toe and a little bit more loft? So when, on average, when a golfer does hit on the high toe and tends to overcook it there, it it comes right back to the middle and uh, gets it up in the air a little bit more because they're kind of de-lofting it as they over-close it for a high toe. And just the opposite on the heel we found, they were tending to hit these weak fade that were going a little too high and crossing the, the center line. So we de-lofted it on the lower heel, and we actually closed it a little bit on the heel. So we twisted it there as well. So that's basically how Twist came about. It was based on hundreds of thousands of shots Big data that we'd collected um, with our player testers, which were out player testing all day every day, five days a week. We have an actual sod farm we test at in here in in uh, San Diego, which has nice perfectly manicured grass they cut it to our specifications we're hitting right into the wind, and we have all these measurement tools out there um, that that basically discovered that right so since then you know we did that with the original driver. Um, with our um, M4, um, M3 and M4 drivers. But this year we put it into our fairways and our rescues because we just didn't have enough data uh, last year um, to do that. So now we've done the same types of testing, collected enough data. And it actually turns out you need a little bit more twist than the fairway and the rescue. So instead of a one degree twist, like we have on the drivers, we actually have a one and a half. So, For us, that was just really exciting to see what big data and analytics can do um, and some of these new modern measurement tools that allowed us to go from the way bulge and roll had been designed for decades um, to really a more modern way to do it using real golfers, real humans, and modern tools and analytics to dial that in. So we were pretty excited to discover that, and we're, we're definitely hearing just with all our fitters out there and the tour player feedback is like, they are getting a lot more shot in the fairway and you're seeing a lot less of those, you know, big misses, um, on high toe shots and, and things like that. So it's, that's pretty exciting.
3: Todd, we're we're running out of time. God knows I've got a ton of questions that I'd love to get mm-hmm. to with you, but one more before I let you go, I know is we all get excited uh, once we get past the holidays and we look ahead to the, PGA merchandise show in late January. Uh, I know you can't give away any trade secrets or anything that, uh, you know, that we'll get the great reveal on when we're there, but uh, some emerging technologies or some things that you might be able to sort of wet our whistle. So we get excited for the PGA merchandise show and what Taylor made uh, might be uh, presenting there. Yeah,
4: I think uh, Chris, I'd love to, uh, share more of that with you and your listeners. Um, I'm just going to ask, we have to ask you to to be patient. We'll probably be coming out, uh, hopefully sometime in December with, uh, you know, an announcement at least on, on the internet before, you know, the show and everything. But yeah, it's, we've been working on this for, um, pretty much three years out uh, is when we started working on the products that we're, we're, um, going to be handing off here early next year. Um, We're really excited about it. We think it's a a nice, uh, real breakthrough in some of the things we've been working on. We're still going to have, you know, evolution of the uh, multi-material technology we came out with in 2015 with the M1 and the M2 drivers that have continued to evolve. Um, The irons we're very excited about. We're continuing to just give more speed and better feel, which is always a challenge with those. So those are are performing great. and you know, we got some new balls coming out as well. So I think, you know, just across the product line, it's going to be great. We did did just come out with some great products this fall too. I'm sure you've already seen in the marketplace. We have a brand new P790 iron that's hitting the marketplace. We just came out with a really cool P790 titanium iron. That's probably our best performing, you know, kind of um, player's distance iron there. So for the guy that you know, just is willing to pay to get the best. It's got a very low CG. It's a titanium construction with a uh, almost half the weight is in a tungsten bar down low. Uh, we've got a new uh, uh, wedge called the MG Millgrind 2 wedge that has a, a raw face that gives more spin, especially in wet conditions. And I think we just came out with a new uh, finish on one of our Spider X putters as well. So there's a lot to look at now if you want to go to our website at uh, TaylorMadeGolf.com and look at the clubs there and you know uh hopefully you'll be able to see some some uh, glimpses of what we're coming out with early spring uh here in in uh in either uh uh mid mid to uh uh or late late December or early January
3: Well Todd, like I say it's 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 been fantastic you having you as part of the show completely fascinated by the things that you talked about and I've got, like I said, I've probably got a dozen more questions uh, I'd love to get the answers to. So hopefully uh, we'll have an opportunity to catch up with you uh, between now and and, uh, and the PGA Merchandise Show and, and certainly afterwards after all of the reveals have happened. But uh, you've been fantastic. I hope you'll come back sometime.
4: Oh, I'd love to come back, Chris. Yeah, anytime.
3: Todd, take care. All the best to you and your family. We look forward to that next time already.
4: Okay, thanks
3: for having me. See you, Todd. That is Todd Beach, and again, he is the senior vice president of research, design, and engineering for Made Golf. And uh, I, I could have gone on for probably another hour, hour and a half, talking to Todd and and, the, and you know all the amazing things that they are working on. Like I say, didn't get an opportunity to talk about the golf balls because I know they've got some great stuff happening there. And like I say, I'm a, I'm a first generation Spider putter. And uh, player, and uh, it has made a world of difference in my putting game. And uh, the the advances and the things that they have done with sight lines and materials, and and made that uh, a little more compact. And then the face a little bit different is absolutely spectacular. So hopefully we get an opportunity to catch up again with Todd and talk about those things. One of the things that I also wanted to talk about with Todd and folks, folks, those P790 irons are you know look like you know some of the best irons you'll ever play. One of the things that uh, we need to talk about we, with respect to those is getting fit and making sure they're fit for our golf swing. So uh, hopefully we can get Todd back on the show and talk about the importance of, of being properly fit for, you know, for our swing. So not only for the irons and not only for the woods, but for the golf balls, too. That makes a big difference. We think it doesn't, but it does. So hopefully we can catch up with Todd again here uh, in, before, uh, before too long. All right, before I get to my next guest, John Hughes, be sure to check out our friends over at uh, Ben Hogan Golf. And, folks, when uh, we talk about Ben Hogan Golf, they're another great golf company. If you haven't tried their iron since the 80s or the 90s, do yourself a favor and get a demo iron for either their Fort Worth PTX, new PTX Pro or Edge irons, and go out on the range and compare it to whatever it is you've got. Because all Ben Hogan irons and wedges are handcrafted. Get this, folks, one at a time in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. So no mass, mass production, no shortcuts. You can order custom-made irons, wedges, and hybrids by going online to BenHoganGolf.com, and they're going to build those clubs to your specifications and get this. Best of all, charge you a fraction of the typical retail price. Check out their complete line of forged irons, wedges, utility irons, hybrids, bags, accessories, and their GS53 driver and fairway woods by going online to BenHoganGolf.com. And, folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why
4: golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop.
1: Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show.
3: And now joining me here on the French Lick Resort guest line is one of the top instructors in our game, John Hughes. John earned his business degree at Appalachian State. He's been teaching the game for almost 30 years now. He's worked with everyone from beginners all the way up to tour pros. He's a PGA master professional and a top 25 instructor with our friends over at golf tips magazine. He won the North Florida PGA sections teacher of the year award back in 2009. And in 2013, he won the Horton Smith award for his dedication to education for all golfers. He's been the president of the North Florida PGA section for the last six years. He's also the head coach for celebration high school ladies golf over there in Orlando. And on top of all of that, He came highly recommended by my good friend, Charlie Fisher at Golf Pride. And if Charlie says, you got to talk to this guy, then I need to talk to this guy. And I'm excited to have John as part of the show. Hey, John, Chris here. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Uh, Thank you, Chris. It's an honor and a pleasure. And uh, I, I think the world of Charlie as well.
3: So, John, one of the things I always like to start off with, with a new guest on the show, is really talking about how you got your start in the game. What, uh, what got you started? Who got you started? Who first put a golf club in your hands?
1: Well, that, that's a somewhat convoluted answer to that, but I'll try to make it brief. I'm, I'm actually a soccer player by trade and played collegiately, semi-professionally and professionally in the North Carolina area back in the late 70s and early 80s. And there was always a golf club at the house. My father would always encourage us to go out in the backyard and use it but I was more concerned with playing soccer at a high level. And eventually a knee injury caught up with me. And, and the first exposure to a lot of fun playing golf was at Appalachian State. There were a couple of guys walking down the dorm room floor one Saturday morning and they woke me up and I was a little bit peeved at him. Opened the door and said, what are you guys doing? Why are you making so much noise? I said, Hey, uh, we're going to play golf. You want to go? I said, well, why would I want to get up so early and go play golf? And one of them winked at me and said, because you can drink beer. And I said, you know what? Give me 10 minutes. I'll shower. I'll be right with you. And I was hooked from there on out. Um, I've had similar stories along the way. When I graduated school, my, my father made sure that that I would at least get out and do something. Uh the, the first couple of months out of school were sort of rough for me. And uh within a little while I had a full set of clubs in my hand. I was out practicing and playing as often as I could. And what was a hobby became a love, became a lifestyle, became a career thirty plus years later. It's it's been a really fun ride.
3: So John, to that end, right, it sounds like it also you know, your career as a as a golf professional sort of just happened organically, but was was there something along the way that uh, sort of lit the fire that said, you know what, I, I want to teach this game. I, I want golf to be my sort of my profession, my way of life. What, did that happen or did it just sort of happen organically for you and just sort of naturally develop?
1: It it, it was a rule of both, Chris, w- where as a to play any sports at a very high level When you quote-unquote retire or you're forced from the game, there's one of four paths you can go, Uh, the front office, coaching, scouting, or you you just step away completely. And I I really wasn't ready to step away from anything when I couldn't play anymore. So I sort of knew playing soccer I wanted to coach. I wanted to be sort of front office, and golf allowed me to do that. Very quickly I played at a very high level on my own. I've got a mentor back in Raleigh, North Carolina, Jim Hamilton, who really put a lot of emphasis on the basics, the fundamentals for me, and really put golf in a perspective for me from a competitive standpoint of view. I never aspired to play competitively, but I was just thirsty for learning, And, and he would sit and talk to me and teach me things, which really spurred me on to say, you know what, I think I can coach this. And as I went through the various stages of a PJ professional's career, sitting behind the counter, running tournaments, folding shirts, those kinds of things, I gravitated more towards that lesson T. I can, I can't count on both hands how many times I was reprimanded by the various people I worked for that, Hey, you need to get back in the shop and do this, that, or the other, which led to me to go full time teaching about 20, 25 years ago which was the best thing I ever did. It's a lot of fun every day getting up, helping other people, watching them succeed, watching them break boundaries to a certain degree. And, and that's what's kept me going from a front office standpoint of view. I ran Golf Digest schools for quite a long time as its director of instruction. And when that position was terminated, I, I've been working for myself ever since. So I'm sort of a one man band, whether it's webmaster answering the phone, and if I'm not doing anything in between, I'm out on that lesson tee as often as I can.
3: And John, when when I look at your students and the range that you teach, you go from anywhere from beginners all the way up to major tour players, which leads me to think what, what's more challenging? More challenging to get a beginner and, and get them going in the game, or is it more challenge trying to help somebody that's got the advanced skills of a tour player?
1: Each of them have their own challenges, in my opinion. The beginner obviously has some just fundamental challenges to get up and running, to use a term loosely, to get the ball airborne, to get it flying, to realize that they can do something. Where a tour player, they're a lot more exacting. They can be a little bit more demanding on personal time because you get a call in the middle of the evening or early in the morning because they've got a, a thought on their mind. They really want to hash out with you where they have an issue, where a beginner may not be doing that, although I offer it to all my clients. They can contact me almost any time they want. The the beginner's questions are more general. They're an absolute great player, very specific, and they offer their own unique set of challenges regardless of where they might be in their career. It's fun doing both, and I think the common theme is the great players of the world do have fun playing. It's their job, but they have fun playing. And if I can connect to what I call their currency of fun, whether it's a tour player or a beginner, we can go places. We can have them reach their potential within not necessarily a short time. You have to understand what it takes to create new movements, and when you put that in perspective, funds the, the gel that makes the common bond between that beginner and the pro. You may not realize it. They may not be looking like it on TV, but the ones I've been around, they certainly have fun playing.
3: So to that point, John, who are some of the tour pros that you had an opportunity to both teach and be around?
1: Well, the, the first couple that I was able to be around was Dillard Pruitt and Michael Christie who were both members of Green Valley Country Club in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, Dillard's now a PJ Tour official. He's got his amateur status back. His brother-in-law, Scott McPlank, would visit all the time. I'd go out and play with them quite a bit, which led them to introduce me to Michael. Michael was a, was an aspiring professional. And he was the first person to Monday qualify for the then Nike Tour, now Corn Ferry Tour. And actually, win the Monday he qualified. That was in Cary, North Carolina. Uh, I worked with Michael Moore with a short game. That, that was probably my biggest strength as a player. And unfortunately, Michael's no longer with us. That led to introductions to various people, like a Lucas Glover in high school, helping him on and off. The the contingency of players that were in that area: Jonathan Bird, Ben and Brian Duncan, to name just a couple. D.J. Trayhan. It wasn't necessarily full-time coaching with them, but definitely questions and answers, opportunities to, to go out and play with them and, and pick their brains and let them pick mine at a very early age. It's been a lot of fun that way. Recently, uh, while Charlie Reimer was trying to get back out on the senior tour, I was helping him a little bit in conjunction with his full-time coach. Um I do a lot with many tour players now. I'm not chasing that tour player as much as I used to, but I love working with that aspiring professional, the one that's really trying to get over the hump. And I've got quite a few here in Orlando that I work with.
3: John, I, w- I want to get a few playing lessons from you tonight because you've got a lot of great stuff either in Golf Tips Magazine plus on your site, johnhughesgolf.com plus on YouTube as well. And And I want to start with with balance in our putting setup. Talk about what can happen if we're not set up properly, if we're set up too far over our toes, too far back on our heels, and then how we can know when we're properly balanced.
1: Great question. And balance is the common theme between all athleticism. Great footwork, great balance is what makes Michael Jordan, the Michael Jordan that he is. Or a Tom Brady, the Tom Brady that he is. And Whether you're putting, hitting a full swing shot, it's balance that allows your rhythm and tempo to be consistent as far as being up on toes or one side to the other. Putting's a little bit more personal than, say, a full swing shot. So what you're trying to do with balance in a putting stroke is ensure that, A, probably a little bit more weight towards the front end. It allows the stroke to work more like a pendulum. Even though all strokes are arc, there's still an acceleration of bottom of that swing arc where the club's moving the fastest. And to lean a little forward in your stance, say 5%, 10% extra, not a bad idea. But when you get up on your toes, this is going to create that arc more into a crazy figure eight or reverse figure eight based on whether you're toe or heel. So the way you're going to know that you're well-balanced is your lower body from the belt down is going to feel pretty darn solid when you make your practice strokes and when you make your, your stroke in general. You won't feel weight shift going back and forth. You won't feel weight moving from toe to heel with any particular foot, right or left, regardless of where you are in that stroke. Maintaining balance is going to allow you to hit that, bottom of the arc more consistently so long as you're feeling that balance consistently.
3: And John, you mentioned your strength being a lot in the in the short game and, and I want to get some short game tips from you because I often hear and read about tips for chipping where we're where we're being told that almost all of our weight should be on our front foot. Is that how you, you teach short, you know, chip shots and that sort of thing? Does does the weight need to be all on our front foot? Um, and does that, and if so, does it change as we get a little bit further away from the pin?
1: I would tell you it changes as your skill level develops, in my opinion, for the beginner. I am asking beginners to put a little bit more weight towards that front side, the left side for a right hander, the left side for, uh, I'm sorry, the right side for the left hander. And this is just going to help create forward shaft lean, a and downward descension angle of attack to the ball just to get it up and moving and rolling. I think as your skills develop, you start altering that balance. You try. You don't need a full weight shift because you're not looking for extreme distance. You're looking for extreme accuracy. When it comes to chipping, so wh- when you're making a huge weight shift in your chipping, it's probably going to change that bottom of the swing arc again trying to anchor it a little bit more forward, not a bad idea, but that's also based on the lie that you have, whether it's in rough, whether it's hard pan, uphill, downhill, side hill, as a general rule for a beginner, not a bad idea, but as you progress through your skill levels, being able to alter that weight based on the lie that you have and the kind of situation that you're trying to perform within, it's not necessarily the standard.
3: So, th- Let's take that a step further. To your point, when we have a hard pan lie, and we're, you know, may, maybe just off the green, 10, 15, 20 feet off the green, and we're trying to hit that shot, a lot of times we do one of two things, we amateurs. We'll either chunk that shot because of the hard pan, or we scull it, and it goes, you know, crazy across the green. What's, what's the approach we should have, and what's our setup look like? Where's the ball position, and what are we doing off that hard pan lie? Well,
1: off that hard pan line, each of those are an indication that you're trying to get the ball up in the air. So it's more about ball position. So the sole and or the bounce of your wedge can actually interact with the hard pan. Having a wedge with a little bit of bounce versus a lot of bounce is more agreeable for that particular shot. Having a little bit of weight forward isn't a bad idea with a ball position a little bit a little bit back of center. This is going to create the proper angle of attack for the club and the sole to interact, the bounce to interact with the ground, guaranteeing that the leading edge is going to be below the equator. If you try to lift it prematurely, that's where the chunk happens. When you try to lift it as a club's entering the hitting zone, that's why you're sculling it. Just be be aware that that club, even hardpan, has got to interact with the ground. Less bounce in the club fall a little bit back and just a slight lean forward is going to help you do that.
3: And John, you have a very interesting drill where you drag an alignment stick through the hitting zone to help hit better, straighter shots. Talk about what that drill does.
1: That drill is designed for the person who loves to early release the club. It's a really simple drill that you basically hold an alignment stick in your hand, place the other end behind you and you're trying to drag it close to your feet you're trying to prevent it from making like a like a, an elliptical arc like a half moon or crescent outwards that outwardness is the outside end swing that most of us swing with being able to drag it across you rotating your body creates not only forward shaft lean an excessive amount and if you've never felt forward shaft lean it it's eye-opening. I see a lot of eyebrows go to the forehead with that. It's also helping you create a more inside path, which is a more efficient path to store more energy to hit the ball longer. Very simple drill. Doesn't have to be done a lot. As a matter of fact, slower is the better versus fast. Just so you can feel how the handle is always going to lead the club head into the golf ball.
3: John, one more before I let you go, and and the worst part of my game is greenside bunker play. I get a lot of anxiety when the ball's in the bunker. I tend to either scull it across the green like we just talked about with the chip shot or hit it fat and leave it in the bunker. What is something that I and and my listeners can do to get it out on the green more consistently?
1: You must have been looking at some of my recent videos, Chris. The the thing that I I really think that sand in general, greenside, is probably the most overtaught aspect of golf there's a laundry list of do's and don'ts. And what most people miss is this is literally a pitch shot kind of swing with the bottom of your swing arc not meeting the ball but actually being behind the ball somewhat based on your sand condition. A really, really simple drill, draw a line in the sand. I call it the walk the line drill. Make it about four or five feet long. Put a ball a couple of inches in front of that line down the line to the right of that. And as the right-hander swings, the concept is make your pitch shot. Don't be concerned about all the do's and don'ts. Just make your natural pitch shot, ensuring that the club is hitting the line. That's ensuring that you have a consistent swing bottom hitting behind the ball. As you walk forward and make these divots, the The concept is, you know what, all i got to do is hit the line. I don't have to hit the ball. And when people buy into this and realize all I've got to do is make a swing, the ball comes out each and every time. And that's the priority is to get it out each and every time is you're able to make a consistent swing bottom, being able to alter your setup a little bit, maybe open the club or close the club a little bit is going to help you with not only direction, but distance control.
3: John, before I let you go, let our listeners know. How can they stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing on your website and on social media as well?
1: Well, I've tried to make it real easy on me and real easy on everybody else. If you can remember, John Hughes Golf put a .com at the end of it. That's my website. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. I'm constantly trying to post. I'm, I'm working on a new video project that should see a tremendous amount more volume of, of video coming out in 2020. and. Hope to share that with you and your listeners some more in in the coming year.
3: Well, John, I I look forward to having you back on the show. I hope you'll join me again sometime. You've been fantastic. And like I say, your videos and your instruction are absolutely wonderful online. So hopefully you'll come back and join us and, and update us on what's going on and anything new you're up to.
1: Absolutely. would love to do so. And, again, I appreciate the honor of being on, Chris. You do a wonderful job.
3: I appreciate you, John. Thank you very much for your time. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up with you again real soon. Same to you. See you, John. That's John Hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, JohnHughesGolf.com, and on uh, social media as well, folks. Check out his videos. Absolutely fantastic stuff. So he's he was fantastic. Well, I'd look forward to hearing all the you know all the other things that he's working on. If he's got a video coming out, want to hear about that and then get into some more of the things from the short game all the way back to the tee box because, uh, like I say, John's got some really great things out there, and I, I certainly enjoyed spending some time on his website and then checking, in, checking out uh, his videos that are available out there on YouTube as well. Again, johnhughesgolf.com. Go check him out. We'll get him back real soon. All right. Before I get to my next guest, Tom Patry, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Positive Vibes Golf. Check them out online at positivevibesgolf.com and give them a follow on Twitter at pvibesgolf. Their head covers and putter covers are a unique way to keep your mind focused on positive thoughts. They're great on the course training aids because you can't help but stay positive when you when you're looking back at, the, at your head covers, your putter covers. They got smiles on them. They got affirmations on them. It makes you feel better. It gets you back in the right frame of mind. If you hit a bad shot, you can't help but smile when you go back and see their putter covers and their head covers in your golf bag. So do yourself a favor. Check them out online. Again, PositiveVibes.com and on Twitter at p All right. Now back with me here on the French Lick Resort guest line is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. Tom is, a, is another Golf Tips Magazine Top 25 instructor. He's back home now in Naples, Florida for his winter residency. You can visit him there at Esplanade Golf and Country Club. So start signing up for golf lessons on his website, TomPatry, P-A-T-R-I, TomPatry.com. Also sign up and subscribe for his newsletter while you're on his site as well. Tom is also a member of the Titleist Leadership Advisory Board. Now, now he's a Yankees fan, but try not to let that you know, lapse in judgment on his part dissuade you from letting him help you with your golf game. I've forgiven him for it, and and it's hard. So I know, I know you can do it. I was, it was hard for me to do. I know you can do it, and uh, like I say, TP is fantastic, and I'm glad he's back on the show. Hey Tom, how are you, my friend?
2: Uh, who's calling, please?
3: <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, I've given, I've forgiven you for your Yankee fandom. It's ridiculous and hard, but I've gotten over it. So you know, I know my listeners will as well. Chris. Tom. I'm
1: so, Tom. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so <laughs> sorry for all the pain you've <laughs> through all these years. <laughs> oh, How are you, big
3: here boys? we go. I'm good. How are you, TP? How you feeling, my friend?
2: Oh man, I I I feel like a pin cushion, Chrissy. I I you you know maybe they don't know out there in the listening land, but I, I've been uh, I've been on the road for well, I was on the road for almost five and three quarter months, and then I I left. Uh, Indianapolis, went to New York, and went through uh, three surgeries and uh, a lot of poking and prodding, and uh, I've never been in all my career in 40 years happy to get back home than than I, than I am now in this year right here. Unbelievable! Great being home.
3: Yeah, and I've been, and uh, you know, because of all the things that you've been through, the the knee surgery, the eye surgeries, I was happy to see some of the posts you've made. It looks like the eye surgery has done wonders, right? It looks like your eyes are doing great. Yeah.
2: Incredible. I mean, I, without going into a lot of detail, I had I had some previous surgery, Chris, in the, uh, in the 90s, which complicated my situation quite a bit. And I was a very, I guess they called me an at-risk patient. So I was a little concerned when you start messing around with your eyes. But uh, my left eye went from uh, 2300 to 2030, and my right eye went from 2200 to 2020. So I would call that relatively successful. And I'm actually now playing and driving and living my life without classes for the first time. And uh I, I couldn't be more excited. It's just been unbelievable.
3: And Tom, a couple of weeks ago I noticed on, on your social media page out on Twitter, and um one of the things that struck me was you were visiting with Villanova head basketball coach Jay Wright. How do you know Jay?
2: So Jay, um, that's, it's a it's a long story. I'll make it short. I, I have a really good friend, um, Coach Frank Romeo, here in Naples, who was a high school basketball and and uh, golf coach in uh, on Long Island when I was growing up as a kid, and just one of those guys that just was was really kind to everybody. And and Frank retired down here. He was a really good buddy and a uh, a major component at Raleigh Massimino's summer basketball camp mm-hmm. in Villanova when Raleigh was there. And uh, and he met Jay Wright through those camps, and then he recommended Jay Wright to Raleigh to become part of his staff. Long story short, Frank and Jay Wright are good friends, and I've been teaching Frank down here for the last 10 to 15 years in Naples, and uh, I know I'm a big Hoop fan. Frank sent Jay Wright years ago. One of my books the Six-Spoke Approach. Jay loved it. He got back in touch with me. We've been corresponding for a long time. And then uh, last year he invited me up to a Villanova Um, golf event. I went up and uh, we kind of hit it off. We've stayed in touch um, in the past 18 months, and then he invited me down to a practice a couple weeks ago when I was in New York during surgeries, and we spent the day together at a closed practice, and then afterwards we spent some time together. So he's just a a wonderful guy, obviously a brilliant basketball mind. We've shared some coaching thoughts. It's been really productive, I think, for both of us. Um, We text about every day back and forth. He wants to talk about golf. I want to talk about basketball. It's been a lot of fun.
3: T.P., I want to get some playing lessons from you tonight. And uh, as I was kind of going back through some of the articles that you've done for Golf Tips Magazine, did one about a year ago, about gaining more distance off the tee. And uh, God knows we're all looking for another, you know, 10, 15, 20 yards. What are some of the things that you've been working with some of your students on where you're, where you're noticing distance leakage in our swings and some of the things that cause it? How can we get 10 or 15 more yards out of our drives?
2: Well, I mean, the first thing the first thing we had to do, Chris, was find a way to get uh, get younger. I mean, um, I, I, I haven't found I, I have found that yet. So if you if you figure that one out, we we can make a lot of money. Um, you know, I think I think one of the uh, one of the Kool-Aid's that we're all drinking out there is that you know we get the longer driver, the longer shaft, the this head, the that head. We play this ball, we play that ball. Um, And I think one of the things, especially the longer shaft thing, really bothers me. Um, We've tested a lot of people over the years at TP Golf Schools, and I've shared a lot of information with a lot of fitters around the country who are good friends of mine. And the number one thing that makes the ball go far in terms of equipment is hitting it in the center of the club face. So it's, it's, it's interesting. In theory, a longer shaft would make it go further. You have more leverage, but what tends to happen when the shaft gets longer is the person cannot, the average player especially, cannot find the center of the club face. So I really, one of the things I've done equipment-wise recently with a lot of my senior players and, and especially a lot of my ladies is I've made their drivers slightly shorter. If you remember when we first started playing the game 100 years ago, the industry standard for drivers was 43 half inches. The very few drivers you buy off the rack now are less than 44 half or 45 inches. And the average player just can't find the center of the club face at 45 inches. When I take people back to 44 or 43 and a half inches, given the right, the right flex in the shaft, you know, miraculous things happen. They, they, they first are very resistant because they think the shorter shafts going to make them hit it shorter. When the fact, just the opposite happens because they find the center of the club face, and the ball goes longer. So that, that's the equipment side of things on the, on the technique side of things. You know, I'm in Naples, and I've got a lot of senior clients, so, you know, a lot of folks down here who are 55 or older. And almost universally, I beg them to get on a strength and flexibility program. Um, we got to get we got to get the machine itself, the machine meaning the body, in better condition. Once we've got that happening and we've got some kind of work being done there, um, we've got to go right down to checklist. You know, we you know we, got, we go down the fundamental fundamental checklist first, Chris. You know, most people who come to me recreationally have their left hand grip up in the palm of their hand in a very weak condition. We got to strengthen their left hand grip. Okay, we got to get the club to create some width in their takeaway, create a you know better turning action to the right, getting loaded in the right side a lot better. We got to deliver the club more from the inside. You know, all my track band work in the last you know six or eight months or ten months. Uh, recent work, I focused a lot on face and path. Most amateurs, you know, come over the top or come from the outside across the golf ball with an open club face. When you can get the golf club returning from the inside and square the club face, miraculous things happen with, with, with speed, with quality of contact, with launch angle, and certainly, therefore, with carry distance. So that's kind of my rough checklist. We go through equipment first. We go through the body second. We go through face and path third, and we go through left-hand grip. And if we can get those things all kind of being paid attention to, we've been able to add a lot of yards to people's golf games.
3: And, Tom, what you mentioned there about going to the shorter shafted driver is something that I've experimented with my golf swing. Um, and, and and I tell you what, to me, and maybe it's just psychological. Like maybe, you know, to your point, maybe I'm able to hit the center of the club face more consistently. But I, I'm more confident when I'm standing a little bit closer to the golf ball. I feel like I, you know, I'm more confident to swing a little faster than I was with, with my standard length driver shaft. It's just something about all of that sort of together makes me feel better about, about my, my ability to drive the golf ball a little bit farther. So I'll teach, to your I'll point teach, about hitting the teach. center of the club face, but I, there's but, gotta be other adjustments in there as well, right? I mean it's not like I can go in the garage and we can take our shaft and clip off a half an inch, an inch, or whatever. But no, the put no, the no, uh, put the club back there, put the grip back on and go, right?
2: No, no, let's let's be let's be very clear to the folks listening out there. If you're gonna change the length of your driver, you're not gonna go in, a, in the garage with a hacksaw and just whip off an inch off your driver. You're gonna go to a fitter Okay, because if the driver length changes, the swing rate changes. If the driver length changes, if you're changing the flex of the shaft. So we've got to make sure that the club is swinging, you're swinging a balanced club, that the swing weight swing, swing is, is what it's supposed to be, and that you're swinging a shaft that is, is the right flex for your swing speed in concert with the length change. So we just don't whip off an inch off the club with a hacksaw in the garage. Please don't do that, and don't try this at home. Um, I'll give you two really, I'll give you two really great tidbits. Um, I, I had the pleasure in my career of becoming very friendly during my Westchester days with the great Kenny Venturi and Kenny was talking to me about, you know, driver swings and center face contact one day. We were talking about distance from the ball. And he said to me, Byron said, as soon as he said, Byron said, my ears kind of stood up on end and perked up. He said, Byron said, you can't stand too close to the golf ball. And I said, well, Kenny, he said, Tom, how many people have you taught that stood too close to the ball, and how many people have you taught that stood too far away from the ball? I said, well, nobody stands too close, and everybody stands too far away. He said, thank you very much. And then also during my college days, I had the privilege of caddying twice for a fellow named Sam Snead. And before I caddied for him each time, both of them were corporate outings. Um, He gave a little clinic, and and the thing he always said to people was, listen, you can't hit the outside fastball. And he said, and, and everybody kind of looked at each other. And I said, folks, he means, you know, you shouldn't be standing too far away from me. You can't reach your objective. And he kind of chuckled. He goes, that's exactly what I mean. So there's two pretty good resources, Sam Steed and Ken Venturi, who both talked about another player named Byron Nelson saying, you know, you can't stand too close to the golf one. And I don't see very many people on the, in the amateur world, you know, standing too close. So I see a ton of folks standing too far
3: away from it. So how do we gauge that, Tom? How do we know if we're the right distance away versus being too far?
2: Well, I like, I like your arms. Once you establish your posture, meaning your, your, your knee flex and your bend from the waist, I want your arms to hang downward, not outward. So so many players, we look at them on the down the line view, Chris, you know, we, we take some video from, from behind down the line. Their arms are way off their body, very, very what I call disconnected. When I see my tour players, and I, when I look at really good players on tour who are really good ball strikers, you look at the down-the-line view, once they've established their spine angle and you look at their arms, they hang almost directly downward out of their shoulder plate. Um, you don't see their arms off their body. You don't see their arms very disconnected from their body. So you get in front of a mirror at home. folks. So put, put any club in your hand. I don't care if you've got a wedge in your hand or you have a driver in your hand. You know, your arms should be hanging directly down, directly down out of your shoulders, If if you're in the right posture, you know, roughly, you know, depending on your body type, it could be anywhere from 16 degrees to 23 degrees of spine tilt from from your pelvic girdle. So, you know, I think you need a pair of trained eyes to help you get in this position. Uh, Again, don't do this at home by yourself. Let's get somebody that's competent that you work with as a teacher to get you set up the right way. But I don't want your arms disconnected from your body. You're going to be too far away from the golf ball.
3: Tom, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk putting uh, and putting grips for that matter.
2: Am I I, I getting getting paid for this? Are we we on the clock right now? (laughs) You don't generally
3: pay. You you know the the check's in the mail, my friend. It's always in the mail.
2: The typical Red Sox fan. Just keep going. Come on, let's (laughs) Let's talk talk some putting.
3: (laughs) Let's talk putting grips. Do you subscribe (laughs) to one way to grip the putter? Uh, or is there a style of putting grip that we should be looking at if we have a consistent miss, whether our miss is maybe you know, on the low side or misses on the high side? Is it one putting grip, or or do you change based on the miss that we typically have?
2: You know, yeah, yeah, first of all, that, that's a great question for everybody in the whole world to listen to. So listen up, golf world. I don't think – I don't care when you putt the golf ball. And I shouldn't say I don't care because, of course, I do care. I don't care if you stand on your head and make a stroke. If the ball's rolling down the line and you're able to control speed and starting direction, you know, have at it. I mean, you know, stand on your po- stand on a pogo stick and do it, if all I care. But I think you see people who are more stable in controlling the face of the club, more stable in making center face contact, which obviously is going to correlate to speed control, um, with a variety of different grips. So, I mean, if you look, if you and I went to a tour event tomorrow, because we we worked on the putting of the PGA Tour event, we'd see a wide variety of uh, anywhere from the classical reverse overlap to you know cross-handed, to split-handed, to the claw, to the pencil, you know, to the to the to the long putter, which is now not the belly putter anymore, but the long putter off the chest. Uh, and I, I question that a little bit too, and, and what's going on with some players on tour. That 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 cover is really mounted or not mounted, but that's a whole different discussion. But we've seen so many different things work. We've seen guys that are a little bit more risky, we've seen guys that are relatively you know arm and shoulder strokers, we've seen guys that arc the putter, we've seen people that are straight back, straight through. So we've seen a lot of different things work. I think that the creativity factor in putting uh, is somewhat lost, and we've become over mechanical at times. But I, I listen, I, I tell people all the time if you're not making putts, you got to make a change. You know if you're not in the holding putts, or you're not able to control the speed or the starting direction then then you've got to try something different okay so i you know I walk people through a variety of of attempts you know my favorite because you, know, you know who my favorite
1: teacher is on 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 in the whole world right now right no please you don't know who my favorite teacher is dr trial no. dr doctor trial and mr. error.
2: <laughs> okay. so i i think that that's that's the one part of golf where you can go out and you can get i'll let you get a little bit out of the box with the putter in your hands i mean i'll let you get a little bit more creative which i will not let you do with a driver or with an iron i think there are fundamental compliances in the full swing that you cannot violate but we, like i said we've seen a lot of crazy things work on the putting grid. You know, I mean, you know, wacky looking things work on a putting ring. So, you
0: know,
2: I experiment a lot with my players. You know, I mean, listen, if I have Mr. and Mrs. Smith and they're 20 handicaps and they just want to, you know, they want to two putt and stop three putting every green, we get them to a ba- very basic looking setup, very square, relatively non complex grip, something very, very, you know, classical. Now, if Mr. Smith starts yipping it and he's flipping it and he's, he's He's got that, you know, that happy happy go lucky wristy rioty putting stroke going. We might put his hands on crosshand. We might we might, you know, put a put a you know a claw grip on the putter, we might, you know, mount the mount a shaft to his left forearm, a la Bernard Langer back, you know, in the second masters win. So we'll try things to quiet that down. But we're not gonna be shy about experimenting with these players and finding something that works for the individual.
3: So Tom Let's, let's take a little different look at putting. Let's talk ball position and stance. When, you, when you're working with a student, talk about what that stance looks like and talk about what that ball position wants to be. Are we, out, are we left toe? Are we center of the, uh, of the stance? Are we wide stance, narrow stance? Talk about how you want somebody to set up for the golf ball.
2: We're, we're, we're back into that individual thing, Chris. So I, I think if you, if you wanted to, if you courted me and made me answer the question, Okay, and and I had to just answer it one way. I tell you I like the ball into your left breast, okay, so it's just left or center. Uh, And I'd like you relatively square setting up to the golf ball. But then you can instantly respond to me and say, well, look at Jack, one of the greatest, you know, clutch putters of all time. Nicholas's putting stance, he was kind of open, chest open, feet a little open. Look at Arnold, he was kind of pigeon-toed, you know, I mean... So, I mean, we've had great players do different things. But, you know, if if you box me into the recreational player, I'd like you to get really relatively square and and very, very simply square. And and I'd like the ball to be under your
1: left breast.
3: And, Tom, one of the things that you always preach about practicing is practicing with a purpose. Talk about what that means.
2: So let's let's, let's talk about that, Chris, in, in terms of putting. So I'm, I'm at Esplanade this morning giving a golf lesson, and, and I'm uh, I'm over by the putting green, and I'm I'm working around around the green with the player, and I I look on the green, and you know Mr. Smith walks on the green, and he's got three balls, and he cuts from hole to hole, and he doesn't really go through a routine, and he kind of knocks one ball ten feet short, and the other ball goes fifteen feet by, and one ball goes high, and one ball goes low, and, and it's just just random results, and he, and he keeps doing that for you know ten or fifteen minutes. And I, I made mention of this to the person I was working with. I said, Here here's the lesson for you right here. I said, What is he accomplishing? And the guy kind of chuckled at me and goes, Well, I, I don't know if I would he's accomplishing much of anything. So when you go to a putting ring, I hope, I hope you've gotten with your coach previously and you set up a practice routine that is a series of skill drills. Maybe it's around the horn, maybe it's uh maybe you're using a putting track or a putting mirror of some kind, maybe you had a hole reducer in. You know, maybe you're using some kind of teaching aid that helps you square the face better. Uh, Maybe you're using metronome for tempo in your putting stroke or you're using using something like blast motion, which measures different different parameters in putting. Um, But you're doing something that's skillful and you're building results based on skill drills. To go to a putting room with three balls and putt the hole to hole, that's called wasting your time. But that's what most amateurs do. They go to a putting green. They take three balls. They putt the hole. The hole fifteen minutes, and they call that putting practice. I call that a waste of time.
3: So, so let's take that one step further, Tom. If if you know, and you talked about in the past, one of the things we've talked about with respect to putting and putting practice is when you're looking around at the putting green, most of us aren't anywhere near it. We're on we're over on the driving range. We've got our driver in our hands, and we're We're trying to smash drives when the majority of the game is, you know, the short game and putting. If we're going to set up a really good putting routine and a putting practice session, what would you like to see us do? And how would you like to see us spending our time?
2: Well, I mean, I I think, I think if you, if you broke the game down purely statistically, and I think that's a little dangerous too, because people have different strengths and weaknesses as individuals. I mean, the guy's a great driver of the golf ball. He doesn't have to spend much time hitting drivers, okay? You know, he, he, he has to hit some drivers, but he doesn't have to spend the lion's share of his time hitting drivers. If he's a terrible putter or he's a terrible sand player or not a rated pitcher without got ball, certainly that area should be set up where that's, that's the vast majority of his time. So I like people when they set up their practice routine to statistically understand their strengths and weaknesses. And – they go and practice the weakest thing first. Because I love when the amateur says, this, well, I was hitting some drivers, but I hit some iron shots, and I meant to get to the putting green, but I ran out of time and I had to go home. I said, well, you're an idiot. You're a complete idiot. You're a moron. What are you doing? <laughs> so go, go to, let's go to the putting green first because that's your weakness. And if you run out of time, but you got the putt for 45 minutes, you address the weakest part of your game with the most amount of time. I mean, doesn't I mean, why is that so hard for people to understand that that you've got to spend the most time on the weakest link? Is that am I saying something that's that? Am I speaking Greek to these people, Chris? (laughs) Help me with this. You know, is that is that hard to figure that out? You know, I mean, Jesus, God Almighty, it's just it's amazing to me that in 2019, with all the information available, the books, the magazines, these wonderful podcasts you do, all these great guests you have, the Golf Channel, there's so many resources now. And the average recreational player is wandering around at their golf facility, chasing their tail. It doesn't make any sense. So am I? Am I sound like I'm a little I'm, fired up tonight? I mean, I mean, I'm just I'm four days back in Naples, and I've I've, I've watched these people do this for four days already. And and it, I'm you know I'm in my my 40th year of doing this, and I'm like, come on, guys, wake up!
3: I'm sure that's exactly how you put it to them too. I have no doubt. That's the instruction. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> what
2: the hell are you doing out here?
3: <laughs> Tom, I know you're on the uh, on the Titleist Leadership Advisory Board. We don't. We haven't spent much time talking about what that actually is.
2: You know what that is? That's that's a gift from God. I'm being dead serious now. Titleist. I've been a part of that, a very small part of that huge family for. Uh, Oh my God! Almost probably 30. I, I got to think about this a little bit, but probably close to 30 years. And and you know what the real what that really means, Because That really means they've been much nicer to me than they need to be because I'm nobody special. Um, I, I'm very very prejudiced, and I'm going to say that in advance to all your listeners. I I think it's the greatest golf company on the on the planet. And I know, you know, you're probably cringing right now because you have other sponsors on your show, but they've been incredibly good to me. I think they're so far ahead of the curve on their research and, devel- you know, research and development. I think the golf ball is the most superior golf ball on the planet. It's not even close. If you if you go through ball plant one or ball plant two up in Fairhaven, Massachusetts, and see what they do to build one single Pro V1, it would absolutely, it would just completely blow you out of the water. And you actually can do that now. You can set up a tour of that plant. And for anybody wants to really learn why it's the best golf ball on the planet, just go take that tour. You'll never... You'll never doubt that for a second again. I've been through that tour probably 10 times in my career, and every time I go through it, it blows me away. Um, I mean, you know, who builds a better pilot than Scotty Cameron? Who builds a better wedge than Bob Bokey? Uh, and I'm a huge Bob Bokey fan, by the way, obviously, being a short-game guy. Um, the new iron line that's come out, the TS line, and, 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 and the TS driver line, and, and the uh, and the new iron line that's come out this year. Has been, been, I just got mine actually delivered this week, and – uh, I just I was just giving the clearance hit some golf balls starting yesterday, so I just started some shots this week with my knee, and I've never felt a golf club that felt any better in my hands in my life. I mean it's uh and so what does it mean? It means that every once in a while they they, they gather us together and they ask us questions about what we're seeing. There's tendencies, of it, what kind of questions amateurs are asking. They bring this board together on occasion and they and they quiz us on, you know, what is the amateur looking for? What are they asking questions about? What are they doing well, what are they not doing well, what what kind of equipment seems to benefit them the best? You know, what are the weaknesses in their game? You know, how, how do they react to different golf balls in the line? Uh, they ask us to test balls occasionally and test clubs and different products occasionally. Uh, it's so much fun to be a small part of the inner sanctum. Uh, I just just before I had my knee scoped and, and the knee job done up in New York, I got to spend a day up at uh, Manchester Lane, which is their test facility up in Fairhaven. Uh, with Karen Gray, who's uh, one of their lead fitters, and just a marvelously talented young lady who does an unbelievable job fitting golf clubs and and helping them with their R&D up there. And and if you saw that test facility, which is a very private place, it's it's incredible. It really, I mean the, uh, the 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 equipment and the things they're using to test golf clubs up there on a daily basis, uh, you feel like you're going through a, a tour of NASA or or the space shuttle or something like that. It's it's just off the charts. And I've been in other factories. I've been, I've been to a lot of competitive factories. I've been privileged to see the other ones. And there's a lot of talented folks in the golf business with all these companies. Make, I'm not, I'm not saying there isn't, but they just seem to take it a step further at Titleist. And uh, it's really impressive. Really impressive.
3: Tom, before uh, I let you go, remind our listeners one more time about how they can uh, stay up to date with all the great things you're doing. Book a lesson. And uh, follow you, whether it's on your website or it's on social media.
2: Yeah, Chris, I want to, I want to, you know, you're, you're very rarely wrong. Very rarely are you wrong. Uh, But you're wrong about baseball and you're wrong about my website. So I want to stand, I want to, I want to, in front of the whole world, I want to correct you tonight. You can't book a lesson on my website. Yeah, here we go. You can't book a lesson on my website. The only way you can book a lesson is by emailing me or texting me. So to text me. 239-404-7790. Two three nine four zero four seven seven nine zero, and these numbers are all on my website. Uh, and then email me at tpatry dot com. The website is very simply tompatry dot com. And then I'm also on all the social media platforms: Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, and Instagram. Um, so they, there's a whole different variety of ways you can find me and through all those networks. You can it leads back to the website, and you can get all my information right there. Uh, we are rocking and rolling here in Naples, Florida. The place is already alive and kicking. Um and there's a ton of people in town earlier than ever, uh, so it's going to be a busy golf season, and I'm really excited to be back here and uh, be at the Esplanade am more excited, Chris, every time I get on with you. Uh, John, you said it beautifully. You do an unbelievable job with this podcast, and people who don't don't tune into your podcast are really missing out on a great venue in golf, but uh, more people need to know who Chris Mascaro is. It's unbelievable. I, I, I love being on with you. <laughs>
3: I appreciate that very much, DP. You're the best, my friend. I can't thank you enough for uh, being generous with your time again tonight and continuing to come back because uh, you're uh, you're just a delight every single time. You're wrong about your Yankees, and that's and that's an unfortunate thing. I blame your parents. It's really not your fault. I blame your parents for that, and uh, listen, so I give you a my pass. My father,
2: my father was a Brooklyn Dodger guy, so you can't blame him. He would that means he would have been a Met fan, and God bless anybody who's a Met fan. So we won't even go into that. But I'm I'm going to put an invitation out to you right now. For the last, how many years have I been on with you now? How many years has it been?
3: I think it's been four years now.
2: Okay, so here's the deal. People who listen to you and I with all this nonsense every time we're on together will will testify that I've invited you to Naples, Florida, 455,000 times, and you're yet to show (laughs) up. Okay? So here's the deal. Here's the deal. The Red Sox spring train in Fort Myers. 20 minutes from my home. I'm standing in my kitchen right now in my home, and 20 minutes away from here is JetBlue Park with the Red Sox Spring Train. I'm going to invite you down one last time. Spring Training, pick a game. I'll get the tickets. We'll play some golf in the morning, go to a game in the afternoon, and I will sit with you. I will sit with you in a Red Sox <laughs> Spring Training game and listen to your nonsense about the 220 season and have you rant and rave, and then I'll take you to dinner afterwards. Oh! Can I offer
1: offer
2: with the dinner topper? Wow! Can we offer any more than that? Is there anything else I have to do to get you to come down here and play some golf?
3: Will you wear a Red Sox jersey and a hat?
2: I will. I will not wear a Red Sox jersey and a hat. There's no damn way (laughs) that's happening. (laughs) There's no way that's happening.
3: (laughs) TV. I will definitely be there. We're going to make that happen. Some way, somehow, we're going to make that happen.
2: Let's do it. Let's
3: do it. All right. Tom, I can't thank you enough, my friend. Take care. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. God bless you, pal. Thanks for having me on. See you, Tom. That's a great Tom Patry. P-A-T-R-I. TomPatry.com is the website. And you can follow him all over social media as well. There just isn't uh, anybody better than Tom. I, I I love every single minute that we get to spend together. And uh, he's been doing the show for a number of years now. And, and for the last few, right, every other week he comes on and joins and shares his, his insights and his playing lessons. And both both of those things are outstanding. And as great a teacher as he is, he's a 10 times better human being. So make sure you follow him and check out his website as well. All right, folks, time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. My sincere thanks to Todd Beach, John Hughes, and the great Tom Patrick for joining me tonight. Please check out our website online, nextonthetee.net. On there, you'll be able to stay up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. Plus, you'll be able to stream or download any of our archive episodes because we link back to our page over on Podbean, and we can't thank those guys enough for featuring us regularly on their app. So check out their app. A lot of great. If you like podcasts just in general across all genres, Podbean's fantastic. So, podbean.com, and you'll find us on there as well. Plus, we're also on other great sites Launchpad, DM.com, Spotify, iHeartRadio, AudioBoom, Player.fm. We're all over the net. Please give me your thoughts as well. Check out our page on Facebook, Next on the Tea with Chris Mascaro. So, if you've got a, some feedback for me, you've got a question you want me to ask for you know, someone that's been on the show or someone that we've got lined up to come on, please let me know. I'll be glad to get that uh, question answered for you folks. I can't thank you enough for continuing to choose to make this show a part of your golfing content. We really appreciate you until next week. Hit them straight. My friends.
2: Hi, I'm Mark Beckham with Atlanta Ramjack. We specialize in only foundation repair. What is foundation repair? Foundations sink or settle. These issues need to be addressed. It only becomes more costly the longer you put it off. What is the biggest cause of foundation problem? Either poor
3: construction,
2: inferior site preparation, or weather. Drought causes cracks in your foundations. If you see any signs of foundation issues, please contact us at atlantaramjack.com.